April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. The American Fly Fishing Trade Association, AFTA, is the sole trade organization for the fly fishing industry. Over the years, AFTA has worked hard to grow the industry, all while balancing the tricky task of sustainability and diversification. In this episode of Anchored, I meet up with Ben Bulis, the organization's president, and Matt Smythe, the communications and membership director. We discuss the size of the industry, overseas manufacturers, guide protection, tolerance, inclusion, pro deals, and the shrink it and pink it strategy. I was born in Manchester, New Hampshire. I uh, lived there through, uh, let's see, high school and uh, went to college at Plymouth State University and then transferred to Montana State University. And I've been in uh, Montana for 26 years now. Okay, great. Yeah. yeah. What about you, Matt? What's your story? I'm born and raised in Canandaigua, New York, in the Finger Lakes region. Uh, it's western New York, about halfway between Syracuse and Buffalo. Went into the service for eight years before I went to college. Uh, finished up at George Mason with a degree in poetry uh, down in Fairfax, Virginia. And then uh, I just, I've been working in advertising and been sort of a hired gun freelance writer and what have you for marketing. And I've been with AFTA now just coming up on two years. Okay. You are a poet. Yeah. <laughs> you actually are a poet. Yeah. Um, okay. So how this conversation all started was I had actually reached out to you, Ben, because I was writing an article called, So You Want to Be a Guide? Yep. And I had said, what's the deal? Does AFTA offer any sort of insurance? And I think I'd have to look at the emails, but I think you had said, you know, like, let's sit down to talk about AFTA. Do you remember this conversation? I do. Okay. I do. Yeah, but I don't actually know a lot about AFTA, so I think it's a great idea. Let's let's talk about it. What on earth is AFTA? All right. So AFTA is the American Fly Fishing Trade Association. Um, it's been around for quite some time, uh, probably the uh, late 80s, early 90s. Oh, that long. Yeah, I can't remember exactly. I wasn't part of the organization then, but um, uh, AFTA was spawned from a larger group called AFTMA, which was the American Fishing Tackle Manufacturers Association. And so out of AFTMA came the American Sport Fishing Association and the American Fly Fishing Trade Association. There were a couple uh, folks that were in the fly fishing industry that sat on that AFTMA board, and they decided that, that we needed our own voice, right? Our own trade association. So that's where AFTA came from. Um, and being here in Denver for the trade show is uh, kind of the home of uh, AFTA. We've been here for, you know, AFTA had its trade shows here for quite some time. I mean, it's been all over the country, but Denver has been the home base for it for a lot of those years. And uh, AFTA didn't own its own trade show earlier. It was owned by a, uh, a venture capital company, Nielsen. And uh, in 2008 or 2009, I think it was, Nielsen came to AFTA and said that they were not going to produce the fishing tackle retailer show or fly tackle retailer show, excuse me. And uh, the board again at that time decided, listen, we need to have our own annual trade show. And IFTD was born. And so, you know, IFTD's, as IFTD, it's been in Denver, 
New Orleans, Reno, Orlando, and then now back here to Denver. It's nice to be back here in Denver. Yeah, it is. And everyone's, that's what, that's, that's, I think the common theme here that everyone that we've spoken to at the trade show is really excited that it's back here and it's, and what people believe is it's home. Why in October, you guys, you're killing me. (laughs) Well, I mean, and yeah. You've been to Orlando in July, right? Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) the short of it. I think I'd rather be to Orlando in July or in Orlando in July than here during like elk season. Oh, that's Uh, true. Very true. Well, I, luckily, I go home tomorrow, and elk season starts for me next weekend. <laughs> okay, got <Yeah>. it. <laughs> maybe that. Maybe that's why we're here for these dates. Yeah, I mean, we, we as an association, I mean, a member-driven association, is uh, we rely on our members, right? It's not us; it's them that drive us. And in 2016, there have been some rumblings over the years of listen, we need to get back to our to Denver. We'd love to go back to Denver or somewhere west. And in late 2016, early 2017, we surveyed our members and they're the ones who chose this. I mean, we gave them, we had, we had two, two choices. We had May and for this year in 2019 with the convention center or October. And, you know, May is from our industry is, you know, it's tarpon season. And uh, so, yeah, you're thinking fishing, but what about shops that have to place their orders and stuff? How does all of that work? Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it it depends, right? The good thing about our industry is it's it's made up of really small industries and companies, I should say. And those small companies, they rely on the show for their annual sales. And, you know, the big companies, they've got their rep force out there and they can show product and they've got, you know, people all over the country driving and, and going to the retailers. But those smaller manufacturers, they don't have that. They don't have the luxury of that. And so they rely on the show. And so they write their orders at the show. And, you know, even talking to the the larger manufacturers over the last couple of days, you know, the show is not, it's a kind of evolved, right? It's, it's the industry as a whole, the trade show industry has evolved. I mean, you can see it through other shows, outdoor shows, whether if it's OR or ICAST or SHOT Show, anything. It's not that paper writing order anymore. It's, it's, it's our industry. I mean, heck, we're sitting here doing a podcast. This is new. I mean, things are evolving. And so... You know, we have to still provide this kind of community, not that kind of community. It is a community. It's a family reunion. Where it, that's exactly comes what it is. Yeah. yeah. What is the focal point of AFTA, Matt? Or what, what, what's the premise from before versus now? Or has it stayed the same? I think it's, it's stayed very, very consistent since the, the beginnings. And it's always been focused on uh, trying to ultimately provide the sustained growth of our industry. And we do that we focus on uh, stewardship and trade development. So we want to help our members be smarter about business so that uh, they can be, whether it's from guide and shop standpoint, they can be more professional and have just in general better uh, more success when it comes to doing business, attracting customers, uh, the customer experience when they come in, how their you know their employees interact with customers and what have you, and then from a guide standpoint as well, helping them with that because the more professional, you know, the more professional a guide is, and the more that they are they're buttoned up on the water, the more they're going to have return clientele. They're going to have people that are booking immediately, you know, for the next one. So we want we want to afford. Uh, our members the opportunity to really leverage as much business success as possible. And then with that, we also do with trade development, we focus a lot on policy 
So we're doing work, whether it's uh, in the conservation realm, you know, and helping to shape policy and policy recommendations to, to help protect our resources. But we also get into, you know, like tax and trade I mean, the tariffs. That's a big one that's going on now. So, you know, we're trying to get in and, and be part of that conversation and be an advocate for for our members and manufacturers. And I mean, even our manufacturers, we do have some big ones, but there are a lot that when they stuff like this happens, they take a deep hit and we need to we need to fight as much as we can uh, to help minimize, if not, you know, avoid that completely. So anything that you want to add to that? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, we, we do a lot besides the trade show and people don't realize that. They, That's what I want to talk to you guys yeah. about. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they see us here once a year or, you know, whether if we're going to the Fernski fly fishing shows around the country and, or any other events, but there's a lot more that we do that people don't understand. Let's talk about it. And just before we do that, so AFTA's members, are they all industry people or can someone who's not in the industry become a member? They're all industry folks. So it, whether if it's a manufacturer, outfitter, guide, retailer, media, uh, another trade organization, it's it's everyone that's in the industry. I mean, you can, as an affiliate individual, become a member, but those affiliates do not have a, a, a voting right, right on the board. How many members have you got? We're at just about to pass 1,200 members. So, you know, from when we started, when I started in 2012, we ended that year with 250. Yeah, that's a climb. Yeah. Big climb. Yeah. How big is the industry, though? You know, you always hear people say it's this tiny industry, no bigger than the toy train industry, is it? Yeah, I guess from, I guess, how, what do you mean by how big? From a dollar sense or a participant participant no let's talk dollars i like talking dollars yeah from a dollar stance <clears throat> um our last uh survey retail survey that we did i think it was it came out at 1.6 billion dollars our industry mm-hmm. is uh that's just retail sales and that does not include big box manufacturers that's all independent specialty retailers okay it's bigger than i thought yeah okay all right so what else does have to do well, we do a bunch of things. I mean, Matt brought up the advocacy thing, and and we have a we have a strong presence in Washington D.C. I mean, we we're there all the time. We have a lobbyist there as well that helps us to do what? Like, give me an example of where so, you would need a lobbyist. Oh, so Matt right now is he's he's focused on Matt Mullen. He's focused on the tax and trade and tariffs. And so a lot of people don't understand. I mean, we sent something out earlier this year about you know getting behind this and making sure that we're have a focus on talking to legislators about the tax and trade and um, the, some of the emails that we got were pretty amazing responses and, you know, buy American, this and that. And it, that's all in, well and do, right? I mean, yeah, let's buy American, but people don't understand the, the global economy of the fly fishing industry from, you know, manufacturers here in the United States that are producing their reels. Yeah, they're made here, but they're, and they might even be buying the raw materials from here. But when you had the 25% increase on foreign raw materials, the domestic manufacturers saw the opportunity to raise their prices. And so it impacted them as well from anything from packs and bags to, you know, in the outdoor industry as a, as a whole, unfortunately, a lot of things are manufactured overseas, specifically in China and brought here to the United States. So, you know, it's, it's people are being impacted and it's those, again, this fly fishing industry is the epitome of small business in America. It is. And they are, they're being impacted by this. And so whether if it's from that, 
Pax and Trade to Pebble Mine to the Smith River in Montana to Lake Okeechobee and water quality issues to federally managed fisheries across the country. I mean, we have, uh, we're there advocating on behalf of our members and we have great access in DC. We walk into these offices. I mean, it's, you call them and you fly fishing. Wow. That's pretty cool. What does this mean? You know, and, and you educate them on it and what it means to be in the fly fishing industry and the businesses in the fly fishing industry. And within that time as well, being there, you're educating them on fly fishing and what you can do with fly fishing. Oh, I never knew that you could catch a, you know, a billfish on a fly, or I never knew you could. Why do fly fishermen care about tarpon and things like that? And you know, you, they just don't understand it. They think it's it's conventional fishing or lures and, and bait. But I mean, you can catch any species of fish on a fly as you can on a, on lures and bait. And, you know, the interesting thing too, is, is, you know, flying to across the country and all these places that we go to, um, you sit and talk to people and, you know, you, I'm not someone who's shies away from a conversation or likes to talk to people and introduce myself to people. And, uh, it's the same thing on airplanes. I mean, it's, you sit next to someone for an hour, two hours, whatever it may be. And you have that conversation and they're like, wow, I never knew that. I thought, uh, how does the how does like a tarpon come up and catch the fly out of the air? Right. Like, no, it right. doesn't sit. It's not a fly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a lot of explaining. Yeah, what exactly. about from a conservation stance? What do you guys do, and how do you pick and choose? That's a that's a, a great question because it seems as though there's just there's more fronts to fight on than you know we have bodies and we have attention span. What we try to do is is we try to work a lot with our partners who are in the fight that are frontline. So whether it's the Bristol Bay Defense Fund or with, you know, we work with TU a lot um, and a lot of other, you know, a lot of other partners, we help try to raise awareness and support, try to really industry support for these organizations in the fight that they've got going on. Boundary Waters is another one. Again, down in Florida, Captains for Clean Water and just things in general working and trying to raise industry awareness. That's, that's the, I mean, this is the balance that we have to strike as a trade organization is we're not consumer facing, right? We're not a BHA um, or we're not a TU. We are, we represent our 1,200, almost 1,300 members. And it's that voice that we hope to bring, you know, to bear on any one of these issues because for those twelve or thirteen hundred members, they've got you know there's an exponential reach from there of their own customers. So the more that we can educate them and make sure that they understand what's going on in all these different places, and it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be a huge project. I mean, we've through the Fisheries Fund, which is our big, that's our granting arm, um, and it's our way of giving back to conservation and education programs. Uh, fisheries, habitat, you know, things like that. So what we try to do is we try to bring the industry to these different initiatives to raise awareness so that people, as Ben said, we want more people to just see what's going on around us. The more that we are able to pay attention to things, the more that we're able to consistently help and be aware. I mean, the, the bad stuff happens when nobody's paying attention, right? It's all the things that are behind the scenes. So when we talk about managing management of striped bass, or we talk about the water quality that's going on in Florida, or we talk about pebble mine, a lot of the country, they just don't know about 
what's going on there. Or even with the Smith River, everybody, you know, they, they're sort of siloed and they think it's the people that are local that understand it the most. But the more that we can, we can show folks that there's stuff going on everywhere and it doesn't take much to get involved, the more that we come together as a whole. For the industry and for us, like the Fisheries Fund is that's that's one of our biggest our biggest outreach. We've helped folks from Bonefish Tarpon Trust with their permit tracking, you know, tagging and tracking. We've helped uh, American Rivers with removing uh, Russian olive trees from the Upper Yellowstone so they can replant native riparian vegetation. We've helped Lucas Bissett. Uh, he's a, a guy down in Slidell, Louisiana. He started a program. He's on our board now, but before he was on our board, he was running a project. The um, They replant black mangroves. Yeah, I'm trying oh, to think yeah, it, but it's the black mangrove project. And so he enlists the help of students. They grow these these mangroves from essentially from small plants they they help them grow in a greenhouse to get to the point where they'll be more resilient and then they actually go out and plant them so i think he said they've planted tens of thousands of these and it's all to help essentially to hang on to the habitat because the gulf is is starting to reach into the mainland all that all that marshland is just more and more water is heading further and further back so they're trying to build and and keep that buffer strong so there's a lot of these they're small you know they're small initiatives but we as an industry thanks to the you know with the fisheries fund which is funded by the trade show there's money that comes from the trade show that goes to it we had a fantastic fundraiser we sold raffles for a road drift boat at the show and you know we're, we're it's the industry coming together to raise money for a fund that helps these small you know these small deals yeah. um the the day for bristol bay actually ran through the fisheries fund so that was a bit bigger and that was fantastic we raised i think just over a hundred thousand dollars on august 24th for the bristol bay defense fund that's great um, and then likewise we're you know we're working with the yellow dog uh, community and conservation foundation and angling trade on the double hall for dorian relief co we're a co we formed a coalition and i think we're in direct donations, I think we're just over – we're closing in on $320,000, $330,000 that has been raised. And then we've got an auction that's going on as well that is – now I think it's closing in on $14,000 that's been raised. So from a conservation standpoint and doing the right thing, paying attention to what's going on, we're very, very involved. And it takes it, – it takes a strong membership. It takes – more and more of our industry coming together to have that voice, right? To really, that's where we get the seat at the table. We're not necessarily out there hollering and being the, you know, the squeaky wheel. We're having the meetings, we're having the conversations, we're helping to shape policy by offering very sound recommendations by working with the industry to, to really figure that out. So, there's a lot of things, like Ben said, it's behind the scenes, and a lot of people don't necessarily see it, but we've got a lot of fronts that we as an industry, as an association on behalf of the industry, are, we're, you know, we're making some really good, really good headway, and our voice is being heard. Yeah, and it's, it's like, you said, like I said earlier, it's that community, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's not just, we're not in a silo, and we're not just working for ourselves, it's, it's, it's our members, and it's... We have we're, we're fortunate that we have such great relationships with all those other, you know, partners. Whether if it's a conservation partner or other trade associations, or you know, and a lot of people don't know this, but I mean, I sit on the TRCP's policy council as well. 
And so it's a, it's a group of outdoor hunting and fishing groups that come together to kind of trans, you know, give some idea of as a, as a whole, what's good for the whole hunting and fishing world. And I also sit on a department of interior uh, advisory committee. I was appointed by the former secretary of interior, Ryan Zinke to that. So there's, I think there's 12 people on that. And I was just in DC two weeks ago for our quarterly meeting. And it's, it's, it's kind of, the advisory committee gives recommendations for, you know, my, the committee that I'm on is for, it's called made in America and it's about public lands and the, all the department of interior properties that they have and, and how to increase, you know, the public private partnership on those and how we can enhance the experience in those interior lands. Okay. Geez. So this is your full-time job. Oh yeah. You're very busy. Oh yeah. Okay. What else does it have to do that you guys would like people to know about? I mean, from like a member's benefit perspective, and we, we, we sparked this conversation on the guide insurance. Now, this is something that, you know, I used to guide a long time ago. I, I did it as a part-time gig once we had kids and to keep myself sane and out of the house because I was a stay-at-home dad. Oh. Um, I did that for eight years. And uh, How did you manage guiding and being a stay-at-home dad? I did it part-time. Oh, okay. Yeah. At first, and then once my kids got older, I started working some more, and you know they were going to daycare and things like that. But as a guide um, in the, in Montana, there's an organization called Foam Fishing Outfitters Association of Montana, and they had a um, a guide program or insurance program, liability program that you became a member, and then you had access to this program. And so when I became part of AFTA, I said, "Why don't we do this?" I thought it was like one of the things that I thought of right away is, "Why don't we do this across the country and all fifty states?" And so we created this liability insurance program in all fifty states. And so, as an independent guide, um, it's thirty-five dollars to join the association, and you have access to this program. And so, it's two million dollars of uh, aggregate liability coverage and a million dollars per occurrence, and it gets only four hundred dollars a year. And so as an independent guide going out to try to research this on your own, it could be upwards of $1,500, $2,000 for the same coverage. And so that's one of the things that we brought forth. I mean, like we said, I mean, epitome of small business in America, right? The fly fishing industry, independent guides, one of those things. They're on the front line. They're the ones who are talking to our consumers. They're the ones who are out there, the face of the industry. And so to them the, and our retailers. Yeah, right? for them and the retailers. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, but they're the ones that spend the eight hours a day, you know, on multiple days on a trip with, with the consumer. And, you know, they become part of the association. They bring them into the community. They get all this education. They get our um, newsletters. And it could be a guide in Montana that knows what's going on in Florida with the water quality issues. And those clients could be from Florida yeah. or vice versa. You know, someone that goes to Montana or f- someone from Montana that goes to Florida to fish for tarpon in May or June, and they're talking about access issues in Montana. It's that education, right? It's that community. It's, it's everybody is intertwined. And it goes back to also like what we did for the Bahamas. I mean, they're not in the United States, but boy, they are our brothers and sisters. You're right though. Guides are the front line. And I feel like they're also the least protected. So what can we do to help encourage these guys put aside retirement savings? Because when I reached out to you, that was my big question. I mean, I, I understand as a guide myself or as a retired guide, I guess, former guide, I remember pricing out insurance and look, I did all right. And I think I got a pretty decent rate. You know, there's a lot of variables there. But what I really needed was something that helped me feel protected if I was injured and or uh, for when I was older, 
what do you got? Do you guys offer anything for that? Yeah, it's it's unfortunately in the United States one of the hardest things is is that health insurance, right? So every state has their own rules and regulations, and it's something that we've been working on. And it's we need the federal laws to change first that insurance companies can sell insurance across state lines, and. The um, oh, so you can't just work with one company, yeah. Right. But the liability insurance, you can. You can, yeah. But not. Yeah. Oh, I get. Okay, all right. It's making sense. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So because say like um, Montana and Florida again, we'll go back to those two states. Two totally separate minimum coverages for health insurance. Right. One state requires that you have, you know, you can cover X, Y, and Z on a health insurance policy. Another state doesn't have the same thing. doesn't have the same coverages. So it's hard for us as a, as a trade association to come together and offer something like that. One thing that we have been discussing with our, our insurance program right now, the Bissell agency, which is based in Bozeman that does the guide insurance. Um, I met one of those guys at the Drake awards the other night. Young, oh, you did. young guy, very enthusiastic. Alex, <laughs> is he a darker guy? Yep. yep yeah. He yep. was amazing. Yeah, he is. Um, but one of the things that we're talking about is like, major casualty insurance, right? If you are a guide and you fall out of the boat and break your leg, I mean, that's, that's something that we're trying to, to, to make available, but. Cause I, would, I feel like guides are keeping everyone else safe. I mean, even liability insurance, yeah, it's keeping themselves safe, but it's for if someone else is injured. I feel like we're always trying to help guides keep everybody else and all these environments and uh, safe, yeah. but we're not doing anything to help them protect themselves yeah, from a health stance, you know? Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things, right? It's small business. It's the same thing. If you are a, you know, a, a, name any small business in America, right? It's like, mm -hmm. how do you provide those benefits to your employees? So yeah. it's definitely something that we're, we're looking into and, and, and I would foresee that we would have something here in the future. Okay. Uh, you, you look confident. So I'm going to, we'll have to do a follow up on this. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> what about from a financial stance? Couldn't you work with some sort of financial or an, an investment firm or somebody who can work across state yeah. lines? Yeah. That's something that I've Ben and I have talked about, and it, it's something that I, I think is, from a small business standpoint, to be as fantastic as the financial literacy and the the way to to make sure that you you're putting enough aside to take care of yourself, you know, take care of down the road. I mean, it could even be from whether it's somebody that's a, like a financial advisor that can help with that, or say, for instance, from a tax standpoint, you've got somebody that that specializes in small business taxes that we're able to offer. We're, you know, there's, there's some things that we're, we're trying to figure out that from a retailer standpoint, from a guide standpoint, you know, when you got a small business, it, it's that type of stuff that'll, will definitely help. So yeah, there's things that we're, we're, we're working on now. We're becoming, um, we're actually, there's a significant push from a member benefit standpoint and membership as a whole. It's important that everybody, that our, our membership is engaged, right? And that we have a, a unified voice and we're able to tackle some tough issues. But we do want to, more than just inviting people to be involved on principle, we want to, we want to make sure that they, we are taking care of them like you know, we're talking about. So Yeah, there's, and then we have other benefits too, from Staples to UPS shipping. Um, for the show, we partnered with Delta Airlines, mm -hmm. and there was a discount code for people that were coming to the show. Nice. And so they got that through the um, online registration. When they got a confirmation, it was in there. But, you know, and the other thing too is as far as like, what we did at the show and it goes back to a member benefit as well, or not even a member benefit. If you don't even have to be a member to, to take advantage of this, but we offer recycled fly boxes 
that are paper that retail stores can use when someone comes in instead of using plastic clamshells that Mm -hmm. it's, it it takes up zero space in your, you know, inventory in the back shop. They come in, they ship in a case, a thousand per case. And they're, I think they're 12, 12 cents a piece when it comes down to it. And they ship flat. You open up the box in one hand and you make a box out of it. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's that what we, that, that's what we do. I mean, we're trying to, we got to walk the walk, right? I mean, we, this trade show, zero single use plastic. Yeah, I saw that. I love that. Love that. And it was, you know, working with Freeman, our partner, um, the exhibitor services partner here that puts on the show for us from a decorator standpoint, they, as a company, they're the largest trade show company in the world. This is a huge push for them internally. This green initiative, if you want to say green initiative, but sure. you know, it should be the do right initiative. Just being right. resp- exactly. a responsible human yeah. being. Yeah. I mean, the trade show industry as a whole is is just the waste that goes into these. I mean, you put these up, these elaborate shows and signage, and it's all on plastic and vinyl, and you know, it gets used for three days a week, and then next thing you know, it's thrown away. So we, as a as an association this year, and producing this trade show, you know, zero single use. Plastic, zero vinyl, vinyl, zero. I mean, all the signage that we used was either on fabric or it was on paper. Um, if you didn't notice, and most people don't notice this, it wasn't branded with the year. So oh, so you can reuse it. We can reuse it. Oh, good. So, I mean, and, and all of the ink... Soy-based ink. ink. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible just the damage ink can do or is doing. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, our our casting ponds that we have, they're not single use. We've had them for five years. They're vinyl, but they're being, and, you know, it keeps me up at night when I'm here at this trade show. (laughs) I mean, there's 4,700 gallons of water in those, and it doesn't look like it. There's only like an inch and a half of water in it, but, you know, it's a huge space. So, I mean, that's one of the things that keeps me up at night if that thing leaks and on a flat con you know concrete floor and where that's going to go so we use them for about four or five years and then we get new ones so this year is going to be the fifth year of using them and they're that we've already contacted freeman contacted a local uh, recycling company and they're coming to get the vinyl after the show fantastic and so you know and we'll have a sustainability report from this with um, the convention center because it's a uh, a gold lead certified building yep. um, they weigh everything, all your trash. So, you know, and, and, and working with the partners here at the trade show from all the vendors with inside of it, like our industry breakfast, it was on plated China. There was, you know, glass and no plastic and you they know, composted food scraps. Yeah. And things along that. Line. Yeah. Everything gets, you know, it doesn't get thrown away. That's incredible that they're willing to work with you. Yeah. I mean, they're great partners. I mean, they, they understand the importance of this and from a, being a building and a convention center, they see the waste that goes into it. We are, we're the temporary stewards of our land and we need to take care of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you guys get any government funding? No, we do not. Where do you get your money from? Just members? Yeah, it's from members in our trade show. I mean, the trade show generates about 55, 58% of our annual revenue. And then, as Matt said earlier, with the fisheries fund, we take a percentage of that. The fisheries fund has has typically been has been self funded, pretty much for you know the last five years. And so we take a percentage of that. And as I said earlier, you know we give back, and the money from our trade show and it goes into that fund. And the fisheries fund is a totally separate board from AFTA. It's AFTA members or the board that's the AFTA board members that sit on it. It's kind of like a committee, but it's its own entity. And uh, we meet quarterly and review applications and uh, give out some money. Okay. What else do you guys do? This is great. 
<laughs> oh. <laughs> well, one of our, I mean, I don't know. I think at the end of the day, I mean, our board, the, the, the one thing that I've, that I've been really, really impressed with, I mean, I haven't, I haven't, I've been part of the industry, you know, with writing and different things like that. So I've been sort of in the universe of the industry for a little while, but being part of the industry and being part of AFTA, working with these board members, these industry professionals that volunteer so much of their time, they're amazing people, right? Everybody that I've talked to and all the folks that like at the show this week, it, it's, it's a very high energy, very passionate community. And that's one of the things that we really want to promote is the fact that it's, it's the relationship building and the fact that at the end of the day, this sport, it's, it's the sport. It's fun, right? It's what we enjoy doing. It's more than a livelihood. It's, 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 and I hate to use the word passion because it's just overwrought, but it, it it's something that we truly enjoy. There's a, there's a very deep meaning. It's in our DNA. Through. Yeah. <laughs> so I think as an association also, anything that we can do to really, to help extend I guess the bounds of our sport to welcome more people, welcome more diversity, you know, women and kids and, and people of color. And the more that we can do that and, and really embrace a wider and wider audience, I think at the end of the day, we're going to be able to make a much larger difference just in general when it comes to, I mean, people's well-being, right? If they're going to get outside, even if they're in the city, but they're able to go and find water somewhere and enjoy some time, you know, some quiet time. It's this industry has afforded me a lot of opportunity to meet people from all over the country, all over the world. And I've been fortunate to do a little bit of traveling as well. If it can have, it, it can afford other folks the same thing. You know, it's you build these relationships and you start to see other parts of the country. You start to pick your head up and understand this world is a lot larger than just my block or just my neighborhood or just my state. You know, you're, you're looking further and further. And I think that there's a lot of opportunity that this industry has is, is offering, but is going to offer more of. So I think in, that's another big, big thing for us is remembering it's not all necessarily reacting to doom and gloom and always having to bloody our knuckles and all that. I mean, it's, it is about the, just the, I don't know, the purity and enjoyment of being outside, enjoying time on the water, being able to interact with something that, I mean, as I think Lantani said last night, it's as, as close to depending, it, it doesn't really matter what you believe in from a God standpoint or your spirituality, but to be able to hold a fish in your hand is probably about as close to God, you know, as you're going to come on this planet. So it, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a special sport. It's a special pastime. So it's something that we really want to help make sure that people, people realize that and we can get more people to enjoy it. Yeah. And it's impactful. I mean, look at what's spawned out of the fly fishing industry from, you know, quiet waters and, you know, project healing waters and casting for recovery. I mean, it's spiritual in some sense, right? It, it takes you, it betters you, I think, as a person mm -hmm. to be outside and be connected. And, you know, like Matt said, it doesn't matter where you are. I mean, one of my favorite places to fish is in Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. if you don't realize that. I mean, it's in, in the springtime. There's a place there called Fletcher's Cove. I mean, you can go down in the morning and you can rent a rowboat when the um, striper and the shad are running and you can go and fish a few hours before work and it's pretty therapeutic. I mean, yeah, it's great public access, great right public there. access right there. It's probably one of the most important 
public accesses, urban public accesses in the country. Really? In DC? Yeah. Right in Washington, DC. Yeah. There's a, you can go down there. It's on department of interior land and you can rent rowboats. And when this, when the shatter running there, if you're not there by five 30 in the morning, you're not getting a boat. (laughs) Too many people. It's packed. And it's, it's kind of surreal. You're sitting there in this beautiful, I mean, it is absolutely gorgeous. Um, there's eagles flying over and heron and, you know, and you're catching shad and stripers and, you know, it's jet after jet coming out, taking off from Reagan. It's right in downtown DC. Surreal. It's awesome. Surreal. And, you know, you, you being in part of the, being in the industry and spending a lot of time in DC, I mean, you'll see legislators out there in a, in a boat. In yeah, the that's morning great. Before you're, you know, before you go to work in the morning, and you know, I've seen Whit Fosberg from TRCP, the CEO of TRCP, out there in the morning. You know, just random. We didn't communicate, but it's like you know, you're in your boat and you wave over to him. And you know, I've seen Chris Wood from the CEO of TU out there in the morning, and it's, it's, you know, I think our industry as a whole, you know, with the marketing materials that you see that come out, it's in these picturesque you know, beautiful areas, but boy, I mean, you can catch fish right in downtown DC, Detroit. I mean, right here in Denver in the Platte, you know, that comes right through here, South Platte. And it's one of the greatest carp fisheries in the world. Yeah. And one of the biggest questions I get just constantly to say, you fly fish. Well, can you fly fish in New York? Isn't that like something yeah. that you do? It, I say, look, if there's water and there's something swimming, you can fly fish for it. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> you know, I, I, it, 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 that's the beauty of it. It's the, the diversity of what it is that you can try to catch, what you can go for it. You know, it, people just, it, it's getting them to understand even at the, that base level, it could be in a lake. It doesn't have to be in some big Western river. It could, it could be in a, you know, a small stream. Yeah. It could be in a, a storm runoff you know, farm a, pond. Yeah, it can be a pond in Orlando and you can catch as many bass as you want. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Talk to me about AFTA, American fly fishing. Yeah. Can someone from Canada join your organization? Of course. I mean, we have members all over the world. It's not just American. I mean, we have, we've got members in Brazil and Europe and, and China and, you know, everywhere. Okay. Let's talk about numbers again. What were the numbers from, uh, from an economical stance 10 years ago? You said it's one point how many billion? It's one point six billion today. Yeah, mm-hmm. so um, I think it was you know off the top of my head. I think three years ago was the first time that we um, passed a billion dollars in retail sales, and so um, so it's growing. Actually, it's growing. It, it was it, last year was one point one, and that was the first time we were over a billion. Oh yeah, and then the year prior it was like. Um, yeah, we nine hundred and fifty. So if it's yeah. growing, where do you guys remember? It would have been fifteen years ago for me, anyway. I remember everybody saying it's dying, it's dying, it's dying. We need participation, 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 and it feels like that whole panic is still happening. But it doesn't sound like it's dying. No, it's not. I mean, we had a, a, a the Recreational Boating and Fishing Foundation. It's called RBFF. Um, they came to our board meeting and, and presented some numbers from us. Um, it's funded by the industry with excise tax dollars. So from the fishing and, and boating world as a whole, so excise tax dollars and they get a, f- a portion of that and they, um, they work to promote boating and fishing and participation. And so Rachel Piacenza and Frank Peterson came to our board meeting the other day and they presented to us and, and fly fishing is growing fly fishing participation and last year's numbers. I think it was 2017 numbers that they had fishing as a whole 
was pretty much was flat pretty much or flat declining a little or bit. declining a little bit. But fly fishing participation had this upward curve, oh. and so there were how are they how are they tracking this a license uh, license sales. But you can't track who's fly fishing from license sales. With their surveys, they can. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And how long have they been doing these surveys for? Uh, I think 20 years. Do you have any numbers for me? Off the top of my head. I think it was 6.9 million fly anglers in the United States last year. Last year? Yeah. Any previous numbers that you might know? Off the top of my head, I think it was... uh, um, I think, him do the I think we were doing, it's not really guessing. I'm just trying, I don't want right. to, you know, it's, I think it, About a ballpark. it's like 5 million, two, three years ago, something like that. Okay. And, you know, they're, and as I said earlier, RBF, RBFF is working to increase participation. And so one of their keys is, is like we said earlier, diversity on the water, getting more women involved. You know, women are the CEOs of the household. Yeah. Yeah. Can I mean, we talk about this whole woman thing? Uh, yeah, sure. How many women sit on your board? We have, let me think. So, well, Jen. We had three. Yep, we had, yeah, we had three. Sorry. Keep and we just had elections. So, um, Jen Levine from Waterworks Lampson, she just uh, termed off. And Lise Lozell from Mavenfly and Casting for Recovery, she just termed off as well. Um, but we have Jen Ripple from the Dunn Magazine. And then uh, Corinne Doctor from Rep Your Water, she just got elected to the board. So she's starting um, her first term. Okay, so termed off. Like, Can, can you renew your term or do they? The bylaws um, state, well, the bylaws are, every, you can sit on the board for nine years. Okay. Okay, and that's something that just changed. Uh, we just changed those bylaws just uh, last year. Um, so how Jen. Long have, how long have you been on, Ben? Um, I'm not a board member. Okay. Yeah. We're employees. I mean, I'm, I'm an ex officio board member. I sit on all board calls and all committee calls as a non voting member. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. So how many people sit on the board? 15. Okay. And they're volunteering their time. A hundred percent volunteer. Okay. Everything from their travel to board meetings, to their hotels for board meetings, their companies, or they personally take care of it. Wow. Their time for calls and work that we're doing. Why do you guys only have two women out of 15? They have to run. They have to put their, we would love to have more. They just have to, you know, step up and run for a board seat. Listen up, ladies. Yeah. Um, I mean, back to the, like you said, you know, more women on our board. Jen Levine was the first woman who was the chair Chair, of our board. Okay. Yeah, and that was last uh, last year. Okay, so you guys aren't trying to stifle. Women. Oh no, not at all. We bring them in. We, um, everyone, we totally open. Okay, and who votes these people in? Our members. members. Our membership. What happened with the rumor on the street was you guys had a woman who wanted to be on, and the board or the members voted her in, and then she was still denied, and then it was overruled, and she was invited on. No, there was a there was a mix up in the in the ballot or the voting. I mean, she wasn't denied. I feel we, like we're we talking Trump it. language here. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> were the Russians involved in this? No, there were no Russians. <laughs> okay. No, no, and we fixed it. We did the right thing. I mean, I'd I mean, love to see more women involved. I mean, at least thirty percent would be nice to see. So that is something that's on your radar, though. Yeah. So we, yep. you know, if you think about the numbers, we're about thirty percent. Just any idea? Or do you want to raise it? Do you want to make it higher? Oh, we'd love to. Yeah. 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 
Okay. Because I got to be honest, I was like, is he a little sexist? Me? But, yeah. But then when you said you were a stay-at-home dad for eight years, it kind of debunked that instantly. Yeah, no. Because I don't think you can be sexist and be a stay-at-home dad. Yeah, no, I don't think so either. No, yeah. no, you can't. No. Okay. So what would you guys, <laughs> I just want to talk a little bit more about this whole getting participation rates up. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like 15 years ago or so, it really was this big drive and this big movement to get more women and children involved. Mm-hmm. Was I just seeing things or was that actually some sort of movement that was happening back then well 15 years ago i wasn't part of the industry so i can't speak to that but you were in the industry though. no at all no (laughs) yeah i was a stay-at-home dad oh yeah my daughter's gonna be 16 okay what about you Matt? (laughs) well my involvement at that point would have been largely i mean i learned how to cast a fly rod 2001 so i'm still oh you guys don't remember that time no it was a really big push and it it was surreal because none of us had the numbers so we'd be like well how do you know it's dying and it was like well oh well you know numbers keep saying license sales and um polls but I remember it was really hard. I wrote an article about it. That's why it's really standing out in my head. And I couldn't track down numbers, but this was also at a, t- at a time. And I remember this specifically because I was writing the article sitting in the hilltop on the Thompson River. And and I can track and I can date all of this because I remember it was when the internet was not wireless. You still had to call and it was beep, beep, beep. Because yeah. we kept trying to get through to the phone and Ross was on like poker player online and, <laughs> and you couldn't get through. So that's, that's how I can date all of this but there was this real push and none of us really knew and it was before social media none of us knew if it was really dying or if this was just a manufacturer's mm. and then all of a sudden we saw pink pink everywhere yeah and it made shrink me shrink it and pink it yeah, worst thing ever it's horrible yeah. and i started i really really questioned and everyone started reaching out to me right we need you to grow the sport we need you to reach other women. And I never knew if it was just a way to make more money for these manufacturers or if the sport and the industry was actually shrinking. Is there any way to track these numbers from that time? We'd have to go back and we have the, the we have um, as far as sales data from that time, but as far as participation data, I'd have to you know go back and talk to our BFF on that if they have that. But I don't think, I mean, I mean, looking at, looking at the show floor and this is our largest trade show that we've ever produced, right? I mean, the numbers were huge. I mean, great, great buzz on the show floor. I mean, I think you see the difference. I mean, oh, oh no, are, no, there's a huge difference. I'll yeah. tell you straight up. It's yeah. night and day. There's, I think we as an industry, I don't know if finally somebody realized that, hey, why not? I mean, it's bring them in. I mean, uh, I don't want to say bring them in because I do sound sexist when you say that, but it's easy to sound sexist. I is. sound sexist all the time. And I assure you, I am not. Yeah, either am I. I mean, we gave an award away last night the Lefty Cray Leadership Board, Industry Leadership Board. Joan. And it went to Joan Wolf. I as mean, it should. As it should, right? I mean, she was the, I hate to say the first, but I mean, she broke the barriers, right? I mean, she was she was that iconic, and she the now lady, is that iconic. First icon- lady of fly fishing. Yeah. She, held the mantle. she is yeah. that iconic person that our industry, you know, holds a deep reverence for. And, and she, unfortunately, she couldn't be here, but you look back on it, I mean, you can look at, you know, 30, 40 year old images and, and she's out there kicking ass Yeah, and she still is. She's not going to yeah. stop. She's no. amazing. Yeah. But you know what? You guys are the perfect people to ask this to because I had Kirk Dieter on and I was explaining to him that in reading my book, I've realized that, you know, in my place of white privilege that mm-hmm. I do need to do my part in diversification. How do we reach a lot of these groups that maybe 
don't even know that this is something that could help them. And and just to kind of put it into context for you, I do some work with a Chicago school, with an inner city school, with some with a lot of the black kids. Mm-hmm. And um, they had seen me on the Steve Harvey show. That's how this kind of all came down. <laughs> and so I would call in every few months and they would ask me primarily business questions about following my passion. But um, for school trips, their teacher, who is this great guy, he started taking them catfishing. And they started really getting into fishing and loving it. But my only way in was through Steve Harvey, but also through, uh, you know, this, this, this African American teacher. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to reach those groups. And, and I think that fly fishing could really help a lot of, I know fly fishing can help a lot of them. Yeah. You guys have that, that voice. We that, do. And I think that's, I think that's something as, you know, as we talked about earlier, those close connections with the consumer facing side of our industry, right? I mean, we, it, it it's the TU. It's it's the BHAs of the world. It's it's captains for clean water. I mean, well, even like Cast Hope. Yeah, Cast Hope. California. Another one. I mean, they're reaching out to kids in the city and stuff like that. I think we we need to be more. We need to be reaching out more. And I mean, as you'd said, I mean, from our position of white privilege, I mean, that's a very real thing, and it's difficult to get past that to say, all right, well, I'm trying to help. But if you're if you're building advocates and you're reaching out. And you're, you know, you're reaching out from a very genuine place to introduce someone. If you introduce the right people, then I don't know, you're, you're passing on, I guess, the benefit or the opportunity. And I think that's the big thing that we need to stay focused on is sharing opportunity. It's, it's the empowerment aspect of it, right? Or the, just the inclusion aspect because there's so, there's so much of it's, it's me versus you or us versus them and, and you know, we there's all these these lines sort of drawn in the sand, and our our sport at the end of the day, the reason that we do it, fish don't know color, fish don't know age, fish. I mean, they may know a worthwhile presentation, but even that's subject to you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's it's about the fish, it's about the experience. So, in, including more people and introducing more people, if that's what we're focused on. I mean, that's sort of the chief complaint with anything when you go to another country. It's you don't go and do it for them. You go and help them understand how to do it for themselves, right? So that they can then become sustainable with it. And I think this is, it's the same sort of, same sort of idea. You know, you, you're able to reach out you're able to introduce, you get the right people that are passionate about say the, the kids or about veterans or you know, women and breast cancer survivors or, or whoever, and you get the people that are passionate about them to have, this is another opportunity for them to heal or to see the world differently, to be involved. And I think that's, that's really what we as an industry and what we as an association, we absolutely stand behind and we want to make sure that this is what our, our industry stands for and where our, our members are, are pushing. Yeah, and it, it, like you said, you know, the white privilege, the crusty old white man organization, if they don't change, they're going to disappear. Yeah. I mean, you need to have that diversity. You need to have that uh, inclusion, I guess, is yeah. it, it, with, if there's lack of a better term. I mean, it's, it's, and like Matt said, we're, we, unfortunately in our time right now, we're, the divisions are just so, so strong. And especially here in the United States, I mean, it's, you're either, we've lost the ability to accept someone else's, you know, 
a differing opinion than our own. And we've gone to a place, if we don't agree with someone, it's, you're against me. And that's not the way that it should be. I mean, it's, it's really unfortunate because um, we're better than that. Well, it's just too easy with keyboards. See, at least yeah. if I want to, if I want to dispute something you've said or your belief, I need to, and say like back in the day where we needed to meet up to discuss something, I need to take the time to travel, think about it while I'm traveling, sit down with you and be able to actually engage in a conversation. And if I've taken the time to travel, we're probably going to take the time to, to communicate. But on the computer, you don't have time to calm down, think about it, knee jerk, yeah. Yeah. hear the tone properly. I mean, it's, it's actually really terrifying what well, computers are doing to our communication. Oh, yeah. And the other thing, too, is you can't get tone and inflection in someone's voice. I know. An emoji from, doesn't do it for me. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, from from an, e- an email. Yeah. You, you, you don't, you, you're not, it's, it's impersonal. Yeah. And that's what, unfortunately, our, you know, our t- day and time now is, is everything is impersonal. Yeah. I mean, you see it from, from instance, we'll go back for an instance, we'll go back to the discussions of Washington, D.C. I mean, in the day, those legislators, when, the, when, when, you know, they were done in the session, they would all go out at, for a beer and hang out together. Yeah. Now, the, the, div- the divisions have gotten so, you know, strong, they don't do that anymore. I mean, it's it's very rare that you see elected officials out doing something together. No, if the they're optics, if the they're, optics, yeah, the optics. Work. You know, <laughs> do you think that's because everyone's got a camera on their phone though, and there's media following them? Yeah, everywhere? probably. I mean, it's, they probably it's want per, to go get a beer. But somebody, yeah, absolutely. But somebody needs to step up and say, "I don't really care. This is what we should be doing." It's it's not you know during the day I could disagree with you on some piece of legislation or bill that you put forth, but you know what? you're a good person and I still like you. Yeah. And, but unfortunately that's not the way that it is. I mean, you, you, you see it a little bit there. And like I said, I mean, we have really good connections in Washington, DC. I mean, I've been to legislators homes and sat in their back porch and had, you know, a cigar and a, a drink with them. I mean, that's what has to happen. I mean, that's what we as a society, a civilization need to come back to because we've lost our ability to communicate and to be accepting of someone else. Yep, absolutely. It's become it's become too intolerant. It's yeah. it's absolutely intolerant and people are it's become acceptable to just immediately call someone names, right? To immediately be I mean the word hate is it's thrown around so much. I remember when I was a kid, man, lord help me if I threw out the word hate, I hate you or something yeah. like that. In in my upbringing, you do not hate. You may not like where somebody is coming from, you may not like what they said or how they treated you, but you do not hate. That's not part of your vernacular, you know? And now and if you even disagree with my career, you're a hater. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, we've definitely washed down the meaning of hatred. Let's have some real talk about industry here. Okay. Where do you guys draw your own moral beliefs, ethics, even your own selfishness on trying to grow the industry and grow the sport when it comes to impacting your own fisheries? Can the fisheries handle the extra attention um that's a really tough question right i mean it's 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 a loaded question i know yeah it's it's um we're dealing with this in montana right now i mean i live in bozeman i mean the madison river has been going through these you know um community groups that get together and, and 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 try to make a decision on what's the best for the health of the resource. And I'm not taking a side on this because it's, it's, <laughs> it's, um, it's super volatile. Um, but I think what, 
I think there's multiple things that, that are tying into this, right? It's more people, it's more access, better access, which isn't a bad thing. It's climate change is impacting our fisheries for sure. A hundred percent. There's no doubt about it. Whether if you believe it's um, man-made or if it's just, you know, the, the environment, the earth doing its thing is as it's been doing for billions of years, clean water protections. Yeah. Clean water protections. I mean, it's, so it's changing and it's all part of it, you know, and it's, it's the internet is part of the reason why it's changing as well, because you do not, you no longer have to live in a big city to have a job. I mean, you can live in Ennis, Montana and be a VP of sales of some company. As long as you have the internet access, I mean, you can be anywhere and you can fish nine to five and work five to three. Yeah. If you want, that's what yeah, I do yeah, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and it, I think the other thing of it too is, is that, that intolerance of others. I mean, it's, it goes back to that. It's, 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 it's not the way that it used to be, or, you know, that's what people say, but then they get into arguments and fights about it. And, and whether if it's someone that's fished this river for 40 years or someone that's new, I mean, that person that was 40, 40 years ago, they were new to that river and, and it, you got to be accepting and it, yeah, it, it is changing. I mean, the, the more people we bring into the industry, the outdoor industry as a whole, whole, right? I mean, I mean, look at it, the outdoor industry in the United States, I think it was like 3.2% of our GDP, gross GDP well, yeah, in the United larger, States, larger than largest industry in the extraction. Yeah. That's excellent. Yeah. I mean, it's more and more people, right? I mean, products involve, evolve and get better and it allows you to stay outside longer. Um, and the access, you know, it's a good thing, but it, it also, you know, it, there are more people out there. There's no doubt about it. I mean, the, the, from where I live, I mean, Yellowstone national parks an hour away. I mean, Yellowstone keeps breaking records every year as far as visitor attendance. Mm. So, it, it, like you said, it's a loaded question. It's difficult. I mean, do you feel any pressure to strategize and try to take a lot of that, you know, those numbers and the concentration of people and try to break it up into other fisheries and other industry people's, you know, realms? Like, I don't know, where's a, where's a place on in America that doesn't get that many visitors? Wh- which state do you think gets the least amount of fly fishermen? Oh, fly oh, fishermen, man! North Dakota. Okay, Maybe. so do you ever do you ever think to yourselves? I, let's say South Dakota. I know let's somebody say South in North Dakota. No. Okay. Like, do you guys in <laughs> your good carp fishing yeah. behind closed doors? Do you guys ever think to yourself, you know, how do we get more people from Montana into, I don't know, South Dakota? Hmm. To That's fish? Question. Yeah. Um. Do you it's have interesting. It's interesting from a, a strategic or a marketing standpoint. Yeah. Um. We do work with state agencies on stuff. So if there's something that, if there is something that's, that you know is worthwhile or a place, some of it kind of depends. But it's it's local as well, right? We've got fantastic uh, tributary fishing up in Western New York, and this is the season when salmon, big brown steelhead, they're you know they're starting to run out of the lakes, Lake Ontario and Lake Erie, and you know you're going to have people that are like, oh, it'd be great to have more folks that are just in general that are into fly fishing and stuff like that, but not on my stream, right? It's already yeah. crowded. Pennsylvania's inundated our state, you know, we get invaded every, you know, so there's a lot of, there's all that conversation. But at the end of the day, I think it, it, it comes down to some of it is, well, to get back to the, like pushing on a state, it's how receptive are they? How much are they willing to 
extend, we would love to have folks come learn about our fisheries and stuff like that. I think there's a, there's a, the way to do that is you have to teach, teach people right off the bat. It's not necessarily just go and catch a fish, right? And I'm just going to dump you in the water and we're going to catch fish. I think you need to, you need to understand and learn about the resource that's there. Understand the river, understand what fly fishing is, understand what it means to be there and the impact that you're having there or the impact that you and your four friends are having just in general, the more respect that people have. I don't want to say that, well, I think we actually, we, we can bring more in. And I think the, the industry will hold the, the, I think the fisheries in general, if we have respect for them and if people understand what the limitations are, people understand what it means to be a conservationist, an advocate for a fishery, not just to be a visitor where I plug in and I leave, but to care consistently about it, right? You, you may have access, but if overfishing is going on and the numbers are flagging, you've got to have the, the self-control you know, to be able to say, you know, I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go out as much as I normally do, or I'm not going to keep fish that are, you know, the, the, the spawning females and stuff like that, or of that size or whatever it is, you know, you have to have your own ethics that you bring to it that, that really help over, you know, just in general overall. And I think that's sort of a culture shift with our industry. And I mean, I'm, I've always been a bit of an idealist, but I think that that's, if we're going to bring more people in, we got to bring them in the right way. Mm-hmm. We got to bring them in with pri- you, they're, where they're prioritizing what's important. It's the resource that's important. So, at the end, you you need to be responsible. Does APTA have any pull on? Like, do you guys have any sway with that? I mean, we as an industry have done a poor job of looking at things differently. I mean, the marketing, right? It's these huge mountain streams and you know these idyllic rivers. I mean, where you don't have to go there. It doesn't have to always be that. I mean, it's not. Or the hero shots. Yeah, or any. You can catch fish on a lake. You don't really see a lot of lake, like advertising material. And I've watched a lot of wonderful business owners and lodge owners go out of business because lakes just aren't cool anymore. Yeah, and there's you know, lake fishing is a hell of a lot of fun. It is, but it's unfortunate because it's not cool anymore because it doesn't seem to get you know garner any recognition on social media, which is going to bring me in, into my next point. Yeah, is this whole and, social media movement? Yeah, and I think mm-hmm. I think the industry as a whole has done itself a disservice for for not thinking outside the box and 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 in their marketing advertising materials. Like I said earlier, you don't really see pictures of you know. Like you didn't know downtown Washington, D.C., you can catch fish. No, I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. And it's phenomenal fishing. What about this then? Do you guys offer any sort of mentorship programs? And I will explain what I mean by this. It is causing some major contention right now within the industry with all these new young hotshot guides who are, you know, finding success because of their social media following. And it's because they're often posting, well, whatever. They could be getting that engagement and those followers for a number of reasons. But I know that it's a major divide between them and the older guides. Have you guys thought about putting in a mentorship program so that these young hot shots have to put in some time to learn from the older guys and gals? Well, I mean, it's it's hard to tell somebody that you have to do this, right? We do best practices for retailers. I mean, that's something that we should come up with for, for guides. Training your staff. Training your staff. Which are largely guides. Yeah. I mean, it's you know, the professionalism we do the, side of the house. Our dealer summit, our, our annual education, 
dealer summit. It's, it's from, you know, best business practices to, you know, HR to being a good retailer and being involved and engaged. And, you know, the days of sitting on the, at the fly shop behind the desk with your feet up, they're gone. I mean, if, if, if you're not involved and engaged with, with that customer as they come in, they're out of there. I mean, cause they don't, unfortunately, the industry needs the specialty retailers. They're the backbone of our industry, but they can very easily just walk out of that fly shop, sit on the corner and order something from their phone. And so the proactive industry members that are, you know, doing fly tying events that are engaged in the community. Again, that's that community aspect of it. It's not just the industry community, but it's their own community at home. Um, those people are flourishing. They're doing really well. And so from a, from a guide's perspective, again, it's the respect, right? I mean, it's, you know, the Insta famous things and, you know, Facebook and, you know, we've seen the, we've seen the stickers. Facebook has killed fly fishing. Right? Yeah, but we're celebrating a lot of these people. The companies are, mm-hmm. you know, by saying, listen, I don't, I mean, behind closed doors they are saying, I don't actually agree with the way this person's going about their career, but you know what? They're, they have an, uh, they have an audience and I'm going to give them a bunch of free rods. Do you guys think that that's starting to become a problem? The pro program in our industry is the is a huge problem. Can I mean, we address that? Yeah, we uh, we we've are, actually had I've, we've had yeah. manufacturers that have we've had conversations with about maybe there's there's a way to come up with a pro program for for the industry where it's maybe it's a little bit more centralized or there's standards that are are built because I mean a lot of them I mean our manufacturers are just as tax trying to keep up with so, with social media so you know it is it's a it's a machine that needs to be fed constantly so there's not always you know the parameters are not necessarily always obvious and sometimes you err on the side of of being overzealous off you know and so I think as an industry I think we can come up with sort of standards and things like that I think it's, it is obvious I think it needs to go back to the way it was. This is what I would do if it were me, okay? <laughs> Excuse me. That's just just right. my two cents. I think that if Jane Doe or John Doe wants to be supported, he needs to go into a shop to get his rate. I think that, and Kirk and I spoke about this briefly, I think that the shop needs to offer a guide discount because that's how I got my stuff. The shop used to give me a 20% off guide discount. I think that the manufacturer, if they want to support that person, needs to match that 20%. That brings us to 40%. Everyone's still making a bit of a profit. And then I think that it's humbling. And I think that, that it also Amen. forces them to yeah. pay their dues to the people before them. Oh, yeah. yeah Is that something that could go down? I mean, this whole direct access to the manufacturer. And I don't mean to cut, like, to shoot myself in the foot because I have that privilege as well. If it doesn't change, it's going to change itself. It, it's unfortunate because, again, the backbone of our industry is those specialty fly shops, right? And and they are, the, in my opinion, the most important cog in the wheel of the industry. But I don't disagree with you. If, 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 if we as the association, we can't go to manufacturers. I mean, we can have the conversations, but we can't all sit down together and say, hey, listen, you know what? This is the way it's going to be. This is the way it has to be because it's their own business, right? I mean, it's, yeah, it'd, be, it'd be like me coming to you and saying, no, this isn't how you should do your podcast. You should do it this way. So, but we can, you know, suggest make recommendations. Yeah. And I don't disagree with you. I think that if you're in a pro program and, and you 
have a fly shop. Obviously, you're going to have a fly shop by you. It might be multiple fly shops. If you're going to buy a product or if product is going to be bought from the manufacturer, it should ship to that retailer. And you go there and you pick it up. And it's, you know, maybe it's 20% off or whatever it may be in a total of 40%. But you need to spend the time in that shop because they're there for a reason. And community. You know, we, we always come back to that word, the community, the community. And I just really think, and listen, and I am not always, I'm always pro fly shop, but I understand the barriers of fly shops. I've had fly shops try to ruin my career. I've had fly shop men do nothing but sit on at the countertop and talk yeah. shit about me. So yeah. like, listen, I understand that there's reasons you don't necessarily want to support your local fly shop, but I guarantee you that there is a fly shop out there that you do want to support. Are they still in business? The one that, you know, talks shit about you? No, actually, <laughs> uh, no, actually they're not. But so there you go. It's going to fix itself. It does fix itself. But you know, there is that community by, by having to go into the shop to, you know, make that transaction happen. Yeah. But it, with this, though, I mean, think, think about it. If we can come up with standards, right, you're not going to be able to tell anybody exactly how it is that they're supposed to do business, right? But if, say, our recommendation is this, it doesn't matter if you're a guide or whatever, if you're, gonna, if you're looking to get into a pro program, you have to have a minimum number of years on the water, right? It's, dis- it's displaying your commitment. It's displaying that before somebody offers you something – you're you're you are good at promoting yourself without any resources behind you you are making it happen and you're you're out there you're you're beating the bushes you're getting your own clients you're building your business it's those people and if they're working with a fly shop and the fly shop says they're constantly in there and they're getting stuff and that fly shop owner says you know what i like you i've built a relationship with you you're you know you're fantastic you bring business in things like that i'm willing to help you out a little bit then you start to build up I mean, any one of us, we weren't just handed, you know, yeah. there's, there's a long road to get to where we are. And just like you said, with whether that, you know, from a mentor standpoint or the sort of the old guard, and I hate using old guard because it comes with a lot of negative connotations, but just the folks that have been in it a while that they know their shit, right? They've worked it. They've earned it. They've been out there. It's blood, sweat, and tears for decades to be undercut or to be, you know, just all of a sudden it becomes a game of of how many likes I can buy or how many products I can wear and it becomes these very you know shallow very shallow posts and all that good stuff it it where I mean people can smell bullshit right and they're starting to call it more and more but there's still like thousands and thousands of people or likes that are being given to these staged posts and stuff like that I don't even know what it does for business but it just it it feels so disingenuous, and we're not a disingenuous industry. It's not fair. Do you guys have a solution, or have you thought have you talked about this? I mean, I, I'm positive that this comes up over whiskey, but at the board <laughs> meetings, does this come up? Oh yeah, we've talked. The the pro program has definitely been brought up, but I mean, like I said earlier, I mean, it's going to to a business and telling them how to run their business. But I think that as an association, we can make recommendations for sure because, I mean. That's how I got into the fly fishing industry. I w- was a fly fisherman beforehand and would go to my local fly shop and, and, and the gentleman who owned it, Brad Parsh, um, you know, I, one day I was, he asked me, he's like, Hey, would you be interested in maybe guiding? And I was like, okay, sure. Yeah, I'd love to. Let's talk about it and what that entails. But you're right. I mean, it's, it's not the way there's something's got to be done or if not, it's going to fix itself. And if it fix itself, it's might not be right. It might not be good for the industry as a whole. 
so it's a it's a tough it's a conundrum right i mean if you have a new guy that's coming into the industry and he is dedicated to the industry there's nobody there that is kind of like the the gatekeeper of that is you know it's it's we rely on the fly shops right i mean to kind of at least where where i live i mean it's it's the guides are 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 work for a shop right in montana there is a guide license program you actually have to get a sign off from an outfitter to get your guides license that's not the same in all the states and it should be i mean colorado for instance no formal guide license has AFTA thought about doing something like that making it so if you want a guide oh but how do you how do you regulate that or how do you enforce that yeah that's the thing i mean it's every state in our country should have minimum requirements right because you're taking clients out then you have to be able to show that you are you know a professional in protecting them liability insurance mm-hmm. cpr first aid and a guide license you should ha- every fifth all 50 states should have to have those just minimums or you don't get a or you can't guide but unfortunately that's not the way it is and it's a, a free market economy and some states decide that that's what they're going to do and others don't and i think as an industry and as an association i think we can we can absolutely lead when it comes to something like that, right? We can build a program or offer recommendations. Some of it is it's buy-in, right? Like if we came up with a sort of guide criteria and you become an AFTA endorsed, right? Orvis does a great job with their guides and things like that and a lot of others. But it's like if there's a way to offer something where people see the legitimacy in it and they start coming fly shops are saying, Hey, look, if you're going to guide for me, then you need to, these are the things that I need. And they're taking guidance from, from the trade association because they know this is something that's, it's not just there. It's, you know, it's everywhere. And I think it's sort of the same idea with taking a stand when it comes to like social media or, or marketing or things. We can take a position. We've taken positions that aren't necessarily very popular, right? But we know we're on the right side of what's good for the industry, what is good for our people. We're not necessarily trying to be everything to all people. We are looking out for the fly fishing industry, for its sustained growth. And it's not just us in a bubble that's saying, oh, well, no, we're going to make this decision. No, we we talk to our manufacturers. We talk to our guides and our, our retailers and everything. And it's it's something that at the end of the day, we can take that stand and it may not necessarily be popular. But if it's not popular, chances are good that that means that we're moving the needle in the right direction because it's not easy. And we're, that's what I love about what it is that we do is that we we do take a stand for what's important and we, we weigh that and you know with regard to the industry more so than just personal and stuff like that we we look at it from the, its livelihoods and its sustainability and and the future so okay wow what's what's next for after what's in the future world well, domination uh, yeah i'm i'm going I'm to take a week off my feet <laughs> yeah, are killing yeah, me and my go. knees yeah um well What's next? I mean, rolling into next year's show already. Yeah, you would be. We've right. got, you know, I met yesterday with the Hyatt and the hotel where a bunch of um, industry programs are going to happen next year. Um, 
met with the convention center again already for next year. Our show floor is ready on the floor plan and, you know, our contract is already out there for, you know, the current exhibitors. I mean, we, we sent it to our current exhibitors as a, a thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for supporting the industry. Thank you for supporting us and having the faith in us and what we did. So they've had the contract now for about a week and, uh, We'll make it available to the general public November 1st and or the general industry, not public. We're a lot of uh, work is going to be going into the Magnuson Stevens reauthorization and trying to that's our federal fisheries uh, management. So we're going we're working on a lot of policy recommendations that we're trying to get into the reauthorization that it sort of looks like it might be this next year. Um, yeah, we'll but, see. Yeah, we'll see. But we're we're ahead of the game now and we're working on some, you know with our legislators and we're, we're trying to make it happen. So back to work. Yeah. The trade show's done. It's back to doing all the other things that we talked about. Yeah. (laughs) All that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you guys, thank you very much for taking time to come on the show. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks for having us. And that concludes this episode of anchored. Thank you for listening. 